I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love Letters is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. From the Boston Globe and PRX, this is Love Letters. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Today, we have a bonus live episode for you, which we recorded before the holidays in December. We couldn't gather in person, of course, so we did the next best thing. We met in a virtual living room hosted on the app Cast, K-A-S-T. It was kind of like being together without actually being together. I was joined by two very smart people, Elizabeth Segrin, a staff writer at Fast Company and author of the book The Rocket Years, and my sister Brett, a love letters regular who always brings her wit and insight and never pulls any punches. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, to Love Letters Live Season 4. We are here uh, live the way you are in 2020, which means in pajama pants, far away from each other. Uh, Guests can see each other on a video, and I'm just so delighted. Um, So it is I, Meredith, your host, and uh, season four has been pretty wonderful. And I'll just start by saying that I knew I wanted to do a season about age and um, lessons we learn at different ages. Maybe that is because I am aging. (laughs) uh, It's just happening, I guess, to all of us. But um, I started to think about whether I was any smarter about relationships now than I was at 15 and 20 and 25 and 35 and now 43. And I think I'm smarter in different ways. But some lessons I learned when I was really young. So I wanted to talk to people who were different ages at different times. And it's been pretty great. And I have two guests here with me today. Um, We're going to start with one. And uh, the other will have her moment. Um, and I'm sure you can guess who that is. Uh, Liz, uh, is our first guest today. Um, uh, Liz, do you want to just tell everybody about yourself and how far away you are from me physically right now, which is actually not that far? Hi. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Liz. Um, I otherwise go by Elizabeth Segrin. Um, and yes, I, I live in Boston, just uh, an hour away from you in Boston traffic. Um, and yeah, so I, I'm a, a design and fashion writer for a magazine called Fast Company, which is based in New York. Um, and I'm also the author of a book called The Rocket Years, How Your 20s Launch the Rest of Your Life. And it's really about the big decisions that we make in our 20s and how they play out over time. And um, 
as I was writing the book, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about love and the decisions that we make um, around our love lives, all the chaotic, um, you know, relationships that we throw ourselves into, the um, the lessons that we learn along the way, um, and then the the decisions that we make that that go on to sh- to shape the decades that that follow. Um, so I've loved this season because I feel like, um, you know, we've sort of been in conversation. You've, you've been in conversation with me in my head. Um, and before this, um, I actually, uh, you know, before I became a journalist, I actually studied classical Indian love poetry. I got a PhD from Berkeley in classical Indian love poetry. And I think one thing that I love about your podcast is that you explore love in this investigative way. And as I was working on my my PhD, it was also very much about how people in third century India explored every facet of love in all of its forms. So really, you're doing kind of the modern day version of the third century um, erotic poets of India. So, you know, that you is always what I wanted the tagline to be of the um, of the podcast. <laughs> And for those of you, if you hear a third voice, that is my sister, Brett uh, Goldstein, who we're going to get to soon. And she is here and um, we're all here for you. So, uh, Liz, I want to obviously you wrote a book about people in their 20s. And what I found fascinating was, you know, I found this book really relevant to me at 43. And so I don't know if that means that I am stunted or probably what it more means is that these are things we should all be thinking of. And can you talk a little bit about how you set up the book? Because you sort of talk about how to build a life, which I find fascinating. Like, what are the parts of a life that bring happiness, that bring joy, that make you feel like rounded as a person? So how did you go about choosing the topics, um, you know, those little facets of, of a person's life to focus on? So I spent a lot of time thinking about what decisions we're making in our 20s. And what I discovered is that most people in their 20s are are focused on three things. And actually, for millennials and Gen Z, it's just one thing. And that is career. Um, For this generation, career is kind of the dominant focus in our 20s. And it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of pressure on our generation. So so I'm a millennial and and Gen Z. There's there's been a lot of pressure on us to find not only a job that um, pays the bills, but also a job that is kind of an extension of who we are. Because we know that we're going to be working for decades, right? It's going to take over our whole lives. So in many ways, um, for people in their 20s, career is the dominant focus. And in fact, it's displaced love as as a main focus, right? One generation ago, and then um, generations before that, you know, people were thinking about career, but they were also, you know, deeply focused on this idea of building a family. And for those of us, you know, who were born in the 80s and beyond, um, you know, we've sort of shifted a lot of our decision making about family and love um, later, right? And so so anyway, the things that we focus on in our 20s tend to be um, career. And then as we head from our 20s into our 30s, we begin to think about um, um, love in whatever form uh, we choose to I- enjoy it, and then family. But, you know, it was so fascinating. I, I spent a lot of time, you know, on those topics in the book. But what I discovered actually is that I think a lot of what researchers have found create a a really 
rich life don't have to do with the things that we're thinking about in our 20s. It's it's really all the things that we're not really focused on in our 20s that end up really shaping kind of how happy we are in life. Um, so things like, you know, we were just talking about this before, but, you know, a person's hobbies have such a huge impact on, you know, their lifelong passions, um, their intellectual, you know, engagement with the world, their physical fitness, their emotional health. Um, I didn't know that. I didn't spend any time in my 20s thinking about hobbies. That, that was kind of the last thing on our minds. Our friendships, our circle of friends, that's another thing that we sort of take for granted in our 20s. But, um, you know, there's a lot of research that shows that as time goes on, you know, it's the people who sort of hold on to their friends and are able to have a rich community that they bring with them throughout the decades after that, um, that end up having, they, they end up living longer, actually. People who have, you know, circles of friends have, have longer, richer, happier lives. That's another thing I really wasn't thinking about. Things like our faith, our um, relationship with our bodies, you know, our political uh, persuasions, all of these things actually have a really big impact on um, our happiness and um, just who we end up becoming throughout our lives. And so really the book um, kind of explores all of these dimensions. But I think the key thing that I would love for people to take away is that you know, I think there's already so much pressure on young people to spend their 20s making really good decisions. Um, and so I think a lot of people feel kind of bogged down by this anxiety of trying to make all of the right choices. But actually, I think one of the big tensions in our 20s is this tension between, on the one hand, trying to make really smart decisions that will set us up for life, but also wanting to go out there and be free and make all of our mistakes and date all of the wrong people and quit a job and move to India, which is exactly what I did. Um, and I think that really um, the thing that I want people to leave with is that it's actually both of these things that that really... Um, make us who we are, right? Um, we can't make good decisions in life unless we know who we are and we know what the world is all about. And that requires us to be free to go out there and explore. And it's really sort of in, in balancing these two um, experiences in our 20s, I think, that, that we come out, you know, figuring some of this stuff out. And, and that's what really propels us in the decades to come. So if there's one thing that I would leave with people, it's, it's don't, you know, don't feel um, so bogged down with the anxiety of trying to make all the right choices, because it's actually in the process of being free to try things out, even if it results in failure, that, um, that, that help you really figure out what you want from life. Well, it's interesting. Our, one of our guests this season, Monica O'Neill, who was the main guest for an episode about ghosting. And she talked, uh, she's a, you know, a mental health professional, right? Like a psychologist who um, talked about how she does not believe in ghosting. She does not want us to do it, by the way. Uh, she talked about maturity and what we know about it from that perspective and that our, I'm probably going to say this wrong, but our prefrontal cortex, our decision-making brain for men, for women usually solidifies at 23 for men, 28, making the average about 25. And, um, and so, you know, there was a lot of conversation at the start of the pandemic. Well, why are all these, you know, early 20 somethings running out and like going to bars and whatever. And I'm thinking, well, okay, but like this, our, our sort of decision-making brain isn't even fully formed in some cases at that age. So it seems like it'd be way too much pressure to expect any 23 year old to, make decisions for the 43-year-old inside of them. So it's sort of good to know that 
even though you've written a book about the importance of this, of, of your 20s, part of that importance is, is making mistakes. I have to wonder about 20-somethings right now, many of whom feel like they lost a year, right? Um, and that, well, everybody feels like this was a year that either drastically changed them, um, perhaps they feel like they lost it. I feel like much younger people feel that than, than someone like me. But I'm also thinking it's been a time t- for older people to truly do some reprioritizing. So one of the reasons we were talking about hobbies and what Liz wrote about 20-somethings and hobbies uh, is because Brett and I didn't think hobbies were a thing until like a year or two ago. Like we we actually used to joke and make fun of people who had hobbies because we were like, what's a hobby? Like my hobby is watching TV. My hobby is going to a restaurant. But like I'm not going to like, you know, knit or like now since pandemic started, I realize I love taking walks. My sister and I are playing Mahjong online with with a, a group of women. Um, we are fully becoming the, the old Jewish ladies we were meant to be. Um, but like we're realizing that there's great character building in activities you do just for pleasure. So, you know, are there in, you talk about millennials, but like for Gen Xers like us and even for some millennials, there are probably a lot of lessons here, too. Like, what did you apply to yourself when you were researching this book? I think that um, I personally am so fascinated with our 20s because they are this period where we are discovering who we are for the first time. And we we develop all of these fascinating insights about who we really are, you know, what we really love, who we love, the kinds of people that we really connect with. We discover, you know, what our great ambitions are. Um, and a lot of that comes through, you know, uh, hard fought, <laughs> um, you know, you know, disasters, right? Like, you know, it's taking all those jobs that didn't pan out. It's dating all those people that, that didn't, you know, that didn't end up being the right fit for us. Um, we learned so much about who we are. And I think that through that decade, you know, and by the time we get into our mid thirties, we have a certain clarity that allows us to sort of drive ourselves forward. And I feel like, you know, in those years, all of those insights are so helpful in helping us feel um, like we want to go out there and, and live this life that we've, you know, we've sort of began to imagine in our minds. And then what happens is this happened to me, you know, by the time you sort of get into your mid thirties, um, you, you know, you, you found, you know, hopefully you found a job that you really like, and it sort of becomes, uh, a little bit mundane. You might take it for granted. You know, you, you finally figured out the kind of person that you want to be with. And in my case, you know, I got married and, you know, it was so dramatic, you know, and, and full of excitement trying, finding my partner. Um, and then we finally, you know, found each other and we decided that we were the right fit and we got married and then life became, you know, changing our daughter's diapers and going grocery shopping. And, you know, I just feel like as time goes on, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the beautiful discoveries that we make, they sort of fade into the background. And, um, and I think that then we get, you know, we kind of get stuck in this rut where we're kind of living out this life and not really appreciating it and not pushing ourselves forward to, to continue discovering things about ourselves and, con- and continuing to, um, to live our best lives, really. Um, and so I think a pandemic gives us a moment to pause and think about what it is that we really want from the decades that we have left, right? And I think a good place to go when we're trying to figure out what to do with those years is just to sort of reconnect with who we were in our 20s, to remember 
all of the fun and exciting experiences we had, but also, you know, the, the, the mistakes that we made, um, the freedom that we experienced, um, the love and the passion that we, that we had that might seem like such a faraway concept now. Um, I think reconnecting with, with that person that we were can really help us as we continue to plan, you know, what, what to do with the next, you know, the years to come. And so I, I don't know, maybe that was part of what, what, um, resonated with you. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, yeah, I was like, Oh, a lot of these things, you know, you mentioned Gen Xers or no, I'm sorry, Gen Zers, um, specifically being interested in career. And for me, it was all career and friends. Like I needed my friends and certainly my family. Um, but like love, love was not on my like major list of things to do. Um, you know, and nor were hobbies, obviously, right? So I think some of these things, I'm like, huh, maybe, maybe, right? Um, we'll see. Uh, but I want to talk a little bit about the love part of it, because obviously we are love letters, which is that often people are making choices about their entire lives uh, and what they might want in a partner, sometimes in their 20s, sometimes in their 30s. And we we dedicated a whole third season to how do you know, right? Various forms of that question. Um, can you give us a little sample sort of of, of you, you approach this book as a journalist, I should say, not as a mental health professional, but as somebody who interviewed a ton of people. So I'm wondering how people talk to you about how they chose a partner for life when they only knew themselves as an adult for maybe five to 10 years. <laughs> you know, I think it's so interesting. Um, I loved writing that chapter um, and I loved, you know, thinking about, um, you know, all of the different research that has come in over the last couple of years that have really helped us understand what is going on when we pick a partner. And I think that we're actually so fortunate because the concept of love has existed in society from the beginning of time, from, you know, the, the poetry that I was looking that I was studying in grad school was all about a, a desire for love and a soulmate. But actually, for most of human history, people were not able to really find somebody um, and and marry somebody that fulfilled that kind of uh, soulmate role. Um, you know, for most of human history, people had to be very pragmatic about the choices that they made about who they married. And um, there was also, um, you know, there, there were all these other societal forces, right? And, and there, there weren't that many people surrounding you, you know, in the third century. There, you know, there was the few people in your village and a certain number of them would be marriageable age and perhaps a few of them would be in the caste that, you know, you were allowed to marry into. And so that that determined, you know, who you would end up with, right? Um, and yet the women who wrote these poems still had this desire for, for this, for somebody that they could really love and who would really understand them. And, and what we know is that most people didn't have that. Now that has completely changed over the last hundred years, but actually even in the sixties, a lot of women, I think something like 60% of women said that, um, you know, love was only part of their consideration when they got married, right? Because a lot of women uh, did not have a source of income. And so, you know, part of their decision still really had to be pragmatic. Now, all of that has changed, um, you know, since, about the, you know, about really about the 80s, actually, you know, the, now we can really uh, make choices about who we marry based entirely on our preferences. And that's partly because, you know, women now, you know, have access to jobs, you know, they can support themselves. And so money is much less of a consideration. And so then 
you know, scientists have been trying to study, you know, what does it really mean when we talk about soulmates, right? Like, so the concept of soulmates have existed, you know, throughout all of eternity, you know, Plato was talking about it in the symposium. Um, but what is it really? And all of the psychologists and the social scientists who, who sort of work through this have really come to the conclusion that, that soulmates are really people who ha- share a lot of commonalities in terms of their socioeconomic background and their life experiences. And they're people who actually, um, know each other, know each other very well, partly because of shared experiences. Um, and so what we're seeing is that in the modern world, um, now, um, you know, the, the divorce rate is actually going down. And that's partly because people who are very similar to one another are able to to find each other and get married. And actually, you know, we actually have this amazing new matchmaker uh, called, um, you know, <laughs> like dating apps. And, and it's becoming even easier to find people who are similar to us. And so ultimately, you know, to answer this like age old question, like who, um, you know, who is it that, you know, that, that is our soulmate? It's really somebody who is, is quite similar to us uh, across a lot of different dimensions, mostly socioeconomic. Um, and so while it's really great that we now like kind of know um, what makes a couple really feel connected to one another and what um, lays the groundwork for a, a good, long and happy marriage, um, the downside to all of this pairing up with people who are very similar to ourselves is that it's actually um, it's actually exacerbating the the wealth gap in the country, right? Because people who are actually, you know, very similar in terms of how much money they had growing up, uh, you know, whether they were able to go to college, the kinds of colleges they went to, things like that, people are pairing off like that. So so w- what I would say is that w- one interesting side effect of this is that, you know, people who are similar to each other are pairing up and um, having kids and, and, you know, and it's just kind of, uh, it's kind of exacerbating this, you know, this this economic gap that's happening. In this that's country. really interesting. And I think this comment might be from Monica O'Neill. Uh, she's going to have to tell me if that's really her in there. But she says marriage is no longer a necessity for women to own property, have money to bear children. Um, this is this is true. And when I read all my Regency romance novels and they talk about a love match as an anomaly, like it, it's very telling. But it's interesting you talk about class and how we couple up because and I need to preface this by saying they are not a sponsor of this podcast episode, so it's hilarious I'm about to bring this up, but I recently said to a friend, what I'm really looking for in a partner is the Casper mattress of men. I swear to God. I, I and let me <laughs> let me let me explain myself because <laughs> because I was like <laughs> this is like so I feel like I'm like now hyping a brand that is I I, I really that, need to know well, about that, this. Okay. As somebody who is a so, journalist who has written about Casper, this, okay. this I need so, to understand. Well this, this is really hilarious because what is also hilarious about my relationship to Casper is that like I one of the first things I did when I moved into my this place that I'm living in is I bought a mattress. It was recommended to me. I bought one and then I bought one for the room that is the guest room slash Brett's room. And um and it's like, you know, it's affordable for some. It's it's uh it's like that. It's like a. It feels like a pretty good mattress for a for a money that I could afford, right? And I like it a lot, right? And I felt good about it. And then Casper at one point advertised on Love Letters, and I was like, I wonder if I could have gotten a free mattress. <laughs> I had already bought it. Anyway, we'll edit that out probably. But anyway, the point is, is that I was like, I'm sure there are like five thousand dollar mattresses that would like fucking rock my world and I would feel like I'm sleeping on like a whatever and I and I'm sure I probably could sleep on like a like a like a whatever like a futon because I know I did for years when I was younger 
But like, it's, I don't know why I was saying that about like the, the kind of partner I'd be looking for. But what I really meant was like someone comfortable and who would be comfortable with my type of comfortable. And, but it's interesting that my instinct was to put it in terms of affordability and quality in a way that now seems quite cynically um, financial. It's that's what was so fascinating about writing that chapter, because we talk about love in this kind of mythic, um, you know, like incredibly like, um, you know, like expressive kind of way. Right. We, we love to talk about it like in these poetic terms, like, oh, this person really you know, I look into his eyes and he just totally gets me. Right. What is that? That is basically this person has had similar life experiences to you, maybe has read similar books in the core curriculum at his university, and therefore has the same reference points that you do. But how you experience it as a person is in the sense of being really known and understood, right? And then you think about like, you know, marriages, right? And the, and the kinds of areas of conflict and the areas of compatibility. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it kind of makes sense that, you know, if you have a shared understanding of money, uh, shared uh, values around education, you know, the, these issues that might come up in a marriage, like where you're going to spend your money, like the kinds of vacations you might have, uh, where you're going to send your child to school, that kind of thing, you know, those are sort of like, you know, easy to, to, to manage when when the person that you're with is from a similar socioeconomic background. And so what's kind of disappointing about all of this is that we we really are still in that Regency, you know, novel world, right? We're just making our decisions ourselves instead of having society dictate to us what, um, you know, like like who we should marry, right? We, we, we have, we're making those choices for ourselves now. Um, but it, it is, it's so interesting to me that, 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 that the feeling of, passion and love and understanding and compatibility really often can be traced to things like essentially class and socioeconomics. I'll also say that when I read these Regency romance novels, like often there's some horrible, like a lot of characters sometimes have to quarantine. So it's actually been interesting to read right now because it's like, oh, like a ship came in, they're all quarantined now. And I'm like, dude, I, I understand. So that's, <laughs> sorry, it's a little bit of a downer, but um, uh, so I, I want to, get to some questions. So the first thing I wanted to say is anybody who's in the chat, um, if you, we have, Renata says, and there was only one bed, a Casper mattress. That's what would happen in a romance novel. You walk into a room and it's like, it was him. It was me. There's only one bed. It's a good, it's a, so, it's a solid trope. It's a meet you. It's a perfect And it's cute. like a twin bed, right? So I'm just reminding everybody, you can absolutely drop questions for any of us in the, the chat. Um, before we move on to our next segment, I just want to talk about gender for one second, because we've been talking a lot about women can now do this, women can now do that, and women looking for partners. And I'm wondering just in a, in a wider look at this, not just to talk about women or straight women, um, in this changing of defining what one seeks out in love, how has this affected, um, like, what did, what did 20-something men tell you? Oh, yes. Oh, ba basically the fact that women can work now and that women are, you know, have a broader choices, basically. Is, is that what you're asking, kind of? Well, just, you know, I think we're talking about these experiences of 20-something of existence as, as very singularly um, women, you know, mm. women's experience. And oh, I yeah, think yeah, that, yeah. you know, obviously, you know, whether it's with love or anything else, like this is something obviously across the board, whether you're gay, straight, you know, no matter your gender, like your, your, your twenties are, you know, so I, I just wonder, um, 
sort of how that played into the lens of the book. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, I think that um, something interesting has happened, which is that, you know, as you were saying, you were singularly focused on your career in your 20s. Um, and that's true of both men and women who are millennials and Gen Zs now, right? Um, career has sort of become the predominant focus of people's 20s. And I think that because of that, men and women are in some ways on a more similar timeline than than previously, right? Because in the past, when women were not as, um, you know, able to, uh, to, to, to feel like they were self-sustaining, right? Um, and, and because women had fewer options on the, you know, you know, on the, in the, in the mark, in the market in terms of, you know, finding a job, um, women were, were really sort of more focused on uh, romance in their 20s, right? Because it was it was very crucial to their lifelong um, stability and happiness, right? Whereas for a man, it was very much about like, you know, finding a good job. Um, and so what's happened now is that both men and women, you know, in their 20s are generally focused on their careers. And then what happens is that in their late 20s and early 30s, things begin to shift. And, and for women, it's primarily because they begin to feel their biological clock ticking. And if having a family is something that they were considering, um, suddenly the issue of marriage becomes, um, you know, kind of looms larger, right, in their, in their thinking. And, and, and that's, that's usually, you know, when men also begin to think about these things. Um, a, a point that I would make, though, is that um, because everything about the way that we, that society operates is, is, is totally changing, right, right before our eyes, there's a, a significant number of young people today who don't want to have kids. And, um, I thought that that was really fascinating and awesome that for a long time, people who who didn't want to have children um, didn't feel like they could talk about it openly, didn't feel like they could necessarily talk to their partner about this. But now there are lots of men and women who just have decided that this is just not for them and they can pair up and they can um, they can make that choice together and then they can, they can live that life together. Right. Um, but it, yes. So so basically what happens is that um, men and women tend to be on a pretty similar timeline Um more generally now. Um, and I think that that's actually really good, right? Because I think that there are all of these tropes, right, from all of the literature we're talking about of women being the ones who care more about like, you know, women women are so attracted to rom-coms, right? Because all they're thinking about is the, the fluffy romance stuff. I, you know, I, I think that all of that was actually historically situated in, in, you know, in cultural realities, right? Like, you know, for most of human history, finding a, a partner for a woman was crucial to her survival, right? And, and it manifested itself in, in novels and in rom Rom-coms, right? In, in, in this kind of, oh, you know, women only care about romance and men are much more focused on other more important things. I think that that's slowly beginning to fall away, right? And I think that, and I think that's a good thing. I think that that's part of equality being the reality. That said, that said, women um, do have um, this issue, right? Where, you know, they're far more connected to their biological clock, right? Um, and, and, and their window for having kids, um, is, 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 is younger, right? Than, than for men. Um, and so one thing that I've heard a lot during this pandemic is that, you know, we're talking about this lost year 
I think that a lot of women are feeling that much more profoundly than men because a a lost year, you know, in this timeline that they had um, is a kind of a big deal, right? Like, you know, if they, if they were planning, you know, for this to be the year that they were going to, you know, start seriously looking for a partner and they're, they're in their mid, you know, mid thirties, a year is a significant amount of time, right? It's, it's, it's a year where that, you know, if, if they aren't able to find somebody and it's, and things are happening much slower because of dating online, um, and not really getting to meet people in person. I mean, this might, you know, create conversations now about like, should, should I be freezing my eggs? You know, should I, um, should I think about maybe having children, you know, by myself, right? These kinds of questions. Whereas men, you know, that's one area where there still is this inequality, right? A lot of men are not thinking about that. A lot of men feel like they still have time to, to continue, you know, trying to, to find the right partner. Um, so yes, what I would say is that to sum up, I think one good thing about the way things are changing is that men and women seem to be sort of getting closer to the, the same timeline in terms of thinking about these issues. And there's no longer this bifurcation between men caring about serious things like careers and women just caring about love and babies, right? I think that's going away. Um, but the realities of our biology still are holding us back in some ways, right? Well, I, you know, I think for 20 somethings, obviously there are a lot of hopeful things here, which is that you can do all this preparation and, um, and, and I will also say that I completely agree in that at 43, I think even my man friends, uh, my straight man friends who have, have so evolved, um, especially the ones I've known for a long time. Like they're often the most romantic people in my life. They're often the people who are really, really interested in finding a partner. They're interested in building families and they were so in their thirties. Um, you know, I'm, I, I do not have a biological clock, but when I hit 36, I was like, I kind of need a bigger place for my cotton candy machine. Um, but, but I do, but I do another thing that I would say about just relationships and networks during this pandemic is that as much as I've never wanted to have kids, I, I love my friends' kids and and kids in my family. And it has been just absolutely desperately weird and strange not to be able to help uh, friends with kids right now um, because that's sort of what your, your, like, cool friend with no kids is supposed to be there for. I mean, I think Brett and I both are – I mean, Brett – less so. Brett's <laughs> shaking her head now. Uh, but, but I, I don't mind helping friends with kids. And I think that, um, you know, my promise to everyone has been that after this, I will do some major babysitting, but I think it's highlighted, uh, the importance, you know, when I was much younger, I think my 20 something friends, when I was a 20 something would always be like, Oh, like, are you sure you don't want to have kids? Are you sure you don't want to have kids? I think they felt like my not doing it would create a divide between us in terms of our life experiences when in fact now they're like thank god (laughs) because (laughs) they have someone in their life who can listen and who can show up um you know in a normal non-pandemic situation and i think if you're listening to this and you're saying oh like actually kids are not a a part of that like you you, i think one of my great fears in my 20s was everybody's going to go off and have kids and have families and where will i be floating and the truth is like you don't wind up floating i mean i think there are certainly moments where you can go out and your friends can't. And, and, um, you know, I talk a lot about how I made younger and older friends at that point who were also very available on a Friday night in a way that my friends with toddlers were not. And then everybody comes back to you. So it's, it's a nice thing. When we come back, Liz and Brett talk about the secrets to sustaining a long-term relationship. And they take some questions from the audience. That's after a short break.
Okay, back to our live episode featuring author and journalist Liz Segrin and my sister, Brett. So I want to get to um, our second segment of the podcast, if both of you are ready. And and by to start that, I just want to reintroduce my sister, Brett Goldstein. Brett, you have been so um, nodding and polite and coming to us live from New York City. Uh, hello. What's up, motherfuckers? <laughs> so... There we go, right? And see, uh, uh, the producer of of the Love Letters podcast, uh, Scott Hellman, was joking that we get so close to not having to label an episode like as um, explicit, and then and then we have to label it explicit. And there, although I, I think I might have had a bad word before you, but anyway, welcome to the. You did. I'm I so did. proud of you. I know you raised me well. Um, so. So basically, the three of us represent two two generations, if you will, Gen X, millennial, um, and Brett is married to a millennial. Brett's husband is a millennial, right? Ten years, nine to ten years younger, right? Um, so uh, I just thought, Brett, like, one question I wanted to ask you um, is, like, do you feel like as you get older, you get smarter about relationships? Or does it sort of just like reset and you just learn different things at different times? And I don't mean to ask you that as if like you're the old lady of the podcast, because you're not. I'm just asking now at, what are you, 47, right? Um, If that's something that you've like really thought about, like I'm getting better at this or I'm getting calmer about this or just for younger listeners, like what is there to look forward to? Am I getting smarter in my own relationship? Is that what you mean? Like in a romantic relationship? Are you talking about relationships in general? In general. Well, your romantic relationship. Yeah. I, I would say like, obviously you've been married for years now and, and, but I'm sure there's less sweating the small stuff than there might've been 10 years ago, or maybe there's more sweating the small stuff. I don't know. So I'm just sort of wondering how that's evolved. That I was just going to say you sweat the small stuff less. And then I was like, don't say that, you cheesy bitch. And then you just said it. I, so now I feel much better, but that's I, exactly what I was going to say. We have the same genetic cheesy bitch inside of us (laughs) it's it's so true so cheesy um is it going to embarrass you if i point out the plaque behind me by the way oh you can say now you can't now you have to do it because and we'll whatever we can edit it out so but let me give you some it's sort of it's sort of weird and creepy and sad though it's so fucking sad so 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 many of you probably know that um our father is alive and well and living in vermont and and our mother unfortunately pat who was quite wonderful passed away in 2013 and before she did we moved her to boston and that involved cleaning out our maryland house and moving her to, to boston and when i was about five years old there was a school project where everybody for Mother's Day had to say why they loved their mothers. And then we had to illustrate it. And the teacher would write it because we didn't really have the ability to write. And so apparently when the teacher asked me, why do you love your mother? I said, I love my mommy because she isn't fat, but she's on a diet. So I (laughs) clearly and then I drew and then I drew rainbows. So I believe that is actually also on the right, supposed to be my mother. I, what it really highlighted was that we had a quite an interesting relationship with food, with food in our house. It was that's like shellacked. Also, we had an also, interesting relationship with the shellac. Well, no, the sh- I think the teacher shellacked it. But what's amazing oh, yeah. is that the teacher didn't force me to say something else. But we what what's interesting <laughs> what's interesting is that my mother then displayed it in our home 
through the rest of our lives so that it never was weird for me to see it because I was like, well, of course, that's why I loved my mother. Anyway, it's so weird. So anyway, Brett has it now on display in her house. It's like one of those odd childhood things. She's like, unpack that shit in one episode. I know, that's, like, like a, a that's full for a different, episode, that's for like a podcast, like, um, uh, what's the one I'm thinking of? Heavyweight. That's for heavyweight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Good point. <laughs> so a different Goldstein's podcast. So anyway, all right. So Brett, answer that question. Right. Okay. So... One thing I've noticed, and and Liz, I'm wondering if it's like this for you too with your Ben, because we, we both have Bens, right? Like we're we're both married to Bens. That's funny, yeah. Um, is that especially with the age difference being almost ten years? Like there's still like just fucked up shit that I used to do all the time. Like like we if if the rare occasion we get into a fight, um, it, I I would pull I, I would hit below the belt a lot like a lot of you know you're a man child and like you know and I married like I married a boy and like just there's all this character assassination stuff because I can be a real c word and like and and now I don't know, he's trained me well it's like now I know you're not going to get yourself anywhere like if you want this to be your partner for the rest of your life. You know, you guys are going to get on each other's nerves sometimes. Sometimes you're not going to agree with each other's choices. And it doesn't mean that you can't talk it through. But, like, the big, epic, dramatic bullshit, like, just not worth it. Because the more worked up I get, um, and I wish I had known this in my 20s, about no matter what it is, uh, the more physically fucked up I get. Like, in my case, autoimmune issues and chronic pain and inflammation. So one of the things that I actively work at every day is like making sure that Ben gets the acknowledgement and the gratitude and the, and the, I see you and you're adorable and you're funny and you're gorgeous and you're wonderful because I feel like in a lot of ways, and this is not bullshit, not blowing smoke up somebody's ass. I feel like that, especially with men, a lot of the times it's like, it's not that easy. Like that's a, that's a shitty way of saying it, but it's, it's the, it's that they don't feel seen. I mean, all of us. It's like we don't feel seen. We don't feel appreciated. We don't feel like we get the recognition for what we bring to the relationship. And the older I get, the more I'm like, just be present with this person. Get your head out of your ass in Love Island for a second and pay attention to him and go like, you fucking rock. And like, and that goes so far. That's like, you know, I don't know, somewhere I read once about like guys with like there's a point system in their mind i don't know if you've ever read that before that, seem, that they that like seems like a sweeping generalization but i will i will accept it for the moment okay go on i remember was it like it wasn't the mars venus thing i don't know some other one of my million self-help books that i love like like they, they just that, that, that they often go on a point system like i get points for doing this or like there are points deduct i don't know i don't know like i feel like if we're in a world of points like that that, that gives you a lot of points towards like warm, everyday, lovely relationship maintenance. Because one thing that I don't find interesting, I don't think I ever did, but now that I really know, like the, the, the bickering and all that shit or like, or, or even the epic fights, like what do you think it's going to get you? Like there's a way of communicating and he's really trained me how to do this, even though he's younger. There's a way of communicating where you can just take a deep breath, like take the time out that you need to calm down and then really just work through something together where you you have your eye set on your super objective, which is love. Like I want to be in this marriage. I want to stay in this marriage. I love this person. So everything you do comes from that place. Whereas before, I think in my younger days, it was more about like, I'm right, you're wrong. You're a piece of shit and a fucking idiot. <laughs> but Brent, you know, it's so interesting. I feel exactly the same way that, um, yeah, I mean, but, you know, it was very emotional 
emotional. Our fights were awful and dramatic, but then the makeup was the makeup sex <laughs> and the making up was really great. I, I would say that I think that like it was just harder for me to I didn't have as much self-control back then. Like part of this was like I was literally physically and emotionally unable to not have that fight. Whereas now I feel like with everything else that's going on and the other stresses of the world, I I don't know. It's just easier for me to to do the things that you're saying. And I hope that I get better at it because I'm still not great. But, you know, would you agree that part of it was also just like I probably knew that I shouldn't have this big dramatic fight, but I just couldn't stop myself? Perhaps. Although I think that lately mindfulness is so built into our education and social media and, the, and our culture and whatever that maybe we would have been smarter, a little bit smarter. But you're right. I mean, I, I, although even at 47, especially when it comes to work things, I'm still like very volatile. Like I, I get triggered so easily, especially being in the entertainment industry. So no, I probably wouldn't have had the self-control, but maybe I would have. I don't know. Like, if I just kept thinking, like, what's your goal? My issue in my 20s is that I was in a relationship with one guy the whole time, and I never once thought, like, oh, do you want to marry him or not? Like, I don't think – I, like, kept tabling it, and then I woke up one day in my 30s and went, oh, I don't think this is the person for me. He hasn't done anything wrong, but I don't think this is it. So I don't know if I gave as much of a shit back then, but I don't, Meredith probably remembers. No, I yeah, know, yeah I, I, I don't know that, you know, Brett and I, you know, one wonderful thing about our mother – that that Brett has also, you know, questioned a little bit too is that she never pressured us to get married. Like she was like go do, go do your thing, right? Um so I don't know that either of us in our 20s um we that we believed we had to think about it. And Brett, the only reason I say it was like really great but also questionable was that Brett said in her late 30s when she was like really ready to get married, well maybe had mom been that pressuring mother we would have gotten on it a little bit more. But um so here's a question that I believe might come from Monica but, but again she needs to tell me if it's her but um if you're taking questions, what were you it's me she says. Yes, it is it is podcast guest and incredible relationship expert Monica O'Neill who you should google um who, oh, that's Monica. Yeah, it's oh, Monica, good. right, who, um, again, for those who missed it, had this incredible episode of this season about ghosting that has really made me rethink it. Um, the question is, what were you looking for in a partners in your 20s and maybe 30s, too, that is different now? Um, and I think Monica would know that my answer would be like one massive shrug emoji. But um, do you two want to answer it? <laughs> Yeah, totally. You know, it's interesting. So I met Ben, my husband, when we were 19 in college. Um, and he was actually the perfect husband material, right? Like he was, he was, he's always been very stable and, um, even tempered and, and had his eye on like starting a family and everything. And I, you know, I kind of felt like, you know, he would be great, right? When I was 19. And then I turned 21 and I was like, fuck this shit. <laughs> I was like, I don't want this. And I, um, I wanted to see what else was out there for me. And the stability of this nice, kind person was just boring to me. Like I wanted to go out there and kind of test the limits of like everything, my sexuality, um, you know, what the world had to offer, what, what, what was out there for me in terms of like, you know, men and women. Right. Um, and I discovered that actually I was really, really grateful for that, for those years. You know, I moved, I, I quit, I quit, I broke up with Ben. I moved to London. I started, I dated a sculptor. Um, you know, I backpacked through Europe with a woman and it was amazing. And it was just, you know, I, I needed to see all of that. But, but what I discovered is that like, 
after having seen all of the different types of people that were out there and, and, you know, I discovered that actually the, the things that I was attracted to initially at 19 were actually the things that I kind of wanted in life. But I, um, I think if I had sort of stayed with Ben throughout that whole time, I, I wouldn't have appreciated it because the whole time I would have been asking myself, is there something that I want more than stability? Is there something that I want more than just kindness and decency, right? Like, do I want somebody who's like a passionate artist who, who comes to the dinner table every night with like amazing ideas? Well, I tried that and that person turned out to be fascinating, but also volatile. And like, you know, his feelings for me were as volatile as his feelings towards the art. Right. And, um, and then, you know, I was like, well, maybe I want to be with somebody who's like, um, you know, like, you know, like more religious. Right. Because, you know, um, I'm, I'm religious and, and Ben wasn't at the time. And, and then I was like, well, this person is like, you know, religion was like, a. Religion can also, I, I didn't realize until I dated this person that, that religion can, can be a source of liberation, but it can also be a source of constraint. And I needed to experience that. So anyway, my point is that I think that in our twenties, and, and this is borne out as well in my book, I think in our twenties, it's really valuable that we have this instinct to want more than the things that I think make, make a good marriage, right? The stability and the, um, the, you know, and, and the decency and the kindness. I think that we, like a lot of people, and, and I'm among them, have this thirst for trying to see, you know, like what the world has to offer and see, see what, what love at its rawest looks like. And I think that that's a very valid and valuable thing. Because I think unless you give yourself the opportunity to try to see what, what what's out there, then when you, you do decide on, you know, the qualities that you're looking for, um, you don't, you don't spend the rest of your life wondering what else was out there for you. Right. And then, so anyway, eventually, you know, I reconnected with Ben and, and, you know, we, we quickly got married and there's, I don't ever once wonder like, you know, is there, should I be with an artist, right? Should I be with somebody who's like more creative or more passionate or more, you know, more religious or, or whatever. Right. I, I never once asked that question. So anyway, that, that's my answer. Brett, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. Hmm. So when Judd Apatow kind of like, you know, became a thing, I remember seeing Seth Rogen and being like, that's it. Like, that's the guy I'm going to marry. And in fact, um, I, I was dating my Ben now and then this other guy who like was Air Force and owned a house and drove a Lexus and had two big dogs and like, and he, and he, I think he just never met a Jew. And so he was like, he was from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And I think he was like, oh my God, she's so funny and clever. And I didn't realize I was a walking stereotype. Anyway, like, like I was dating him. <laughs> you should have seen the look on Meredith's face. Like I brought him to Passover Seder and he was like crying during Dayenu and Meredith was like slowly shaking her head. And, you know, which is, it, it was, I took all sorts of abuse uh, from not only Meredith, but my aunt and uncle for bringing him to Seder. Because, you know, he like also made a lot of money and grandma and grandpa really liked him, blah, blah. Meanwhile, the whole point is, is I had, there was, I was interventioned at Seder in the basement by my very tall aunt and uncle because they were like, you don't love him. You love Ben. And I remember even on, on my first date with that guy, I was wasted and I went upstairs to pee uh, back when these hornies <laughs> could do stairs. Somebody just asked, and, is he still single? Set me up. <laughs> He might, oh. he might still be single. We should Google no, him. No, he married, he married. He did. He, at Meredith, he married a girl, Okay, by the way, all right. The I had some, yeah. I had some, okay, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> she had some questions. <laughs> I had some questions. 
Um, that was hilarious. So, so like, yay. Yeah, they might even have a kid by now. I don't know. Anyway, like, uh, but yeah, no, this guy was great. He was, he, he was, was great. Nice. A he was little nice. bit gay. Yeah, totally great. And uh, that's not a bad thing. I, I Anyway, <laughs> I remember peeing. Because when I saw him, I was like, he's so out of my league. So I was like, ah, I'm just going to have like two pitchers of beer and a bunch of wings and fries. I'm like a fat fuck. Like I, on our first date, and I remember going upstairs to pee and they had a knocked up advertisement like on the wall in the bathroom of the Bull Moose Saloon on West 44th Street and 9th Avenue. And I remember being like, like in kind of my blackout, like looking at that face and being like, but that's the guy. And that, and Ben Barokas, like, especially then looked exactly like Seth Rogen. And, and I think part of this came from, and Mara, tell me if I'm jumping around too much here, but part of this came from mom basically being like, you can never ever, and sorry, dad, if you're listening to this, but like, you can never depend on a man to support you have separate checking accounts, and and you just know you'll always be the breadwinner. I don't know if she said that to you, Meredith, but she said that well, to me. Well, I think it was implied—I think there was—it was implied in the reasons they got divorced. It was implied in her being the breadwinner of the family and, and also post-divorce really taking on the burden of, you know, whatever financial situation there was. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, it was, it was explicitly said, and I think it was also said in example. Right. So at 34— when most, I think women would have their clocks ticking and freaking the fuck out. And like, and also most intelligent women would be, New Yorkers especially, would be like, I need to find somebody who at least can match me when it comes to making a living and somebody who has their head on straight. I married a guy that made bongs for a living and still does. And not in a like, you know, I'm, I'm raking in thousands of whatever. No, like he, okay. He, so anyway, he he's an artist, right? Beautiful beautiful work he does yes yes but this is not an area where i breathe easily and go oh i'm totally taken care of because i was i i'm still in this belief system of you you have to be the breadwinner in the family so if i could do it differently and here's the thing though in a way i'm i would have never stuck with ben i wouldn't have dated him if I hadn't had those beliefs that I had. Like, but if I were to completely wipe him off the planet, because now I'm super happy. Um, it, it's not like that dynamic ever changed between the two of us. But I'm happy that I'm with him because he's so fucking good for me. And Meredith likes him and Meredith hated everybody for the most part. So. I did. I yeah, also love, yeah, yeah. by the way, that you're like, you look at a poster of Seth Rogen and you're like, I want that. And then you get it. And I look at a poster of Robert Pattinson and I'm like, I want that. Hasn't happened, happened yet. <laughs> Well, yeah, but you're not working really hard at that, right? Like, right. you no, were really no, trying. No. I was like, right. Yeah. Well, it's um, also Pattinson. Anyway, uh, Renata says, keep visualizing in the comments section. I trust me, I'm visualizing all the time so about Robert Pattinson. I'm secreting Robert Pattinson. Okay. All right. We, we are running out of time. So, we're going to have an abridged part three. Part three of this live podcast taping is going to be my posing questions I received in the Love Letters column. Uh, because, of course, it is an advice column. And for those who don't know that, you can check it out at boston.com slash loveletters. Um, send your own letters. Uh, but I'm going to ask two questions. Um, and the first one is kind of similar to something we just talked about. Uh, Dear Meredith, I've been married to my husband for 15 years. 
We were in college, and we met when we had no money in the beginning. Since college, he has continuously made more money than I have and has inherited some money from a relative who passed away a few years ago. He never told me how much he inherited because he's private about that sort of things. Um, I see how keeping things separate are an advantage to him. Perhaps that's why he'd like to keep it that way. But I use most of my check to pay half of the bills, and it's occasionally a hardship for me. Sometimes I've borrowed money from friends and family to make it work. I believe he should pay a larger share of the household expenses because he makes more, but he thinks if I can afford my portion, I should, if I cannot afford my portion, I should either get a better job or cut back on personal expenses. And by the way, this letter writer says they love their job. Um, she says, I know it's different for every couple, but I thought that some married people put all their money into a household account, paid the mutual bills, the richer one helped the poorer one out. He does not see it this way. So what would you say to a person experiencing this kind of financial argument with a partner? Because I think I was like, go to a therapist and a financial advisor and also get out. <laughs> also get I, out. <laughs> I was, I thought I was so upset when I saw this, this, this question, because it just seems like there's, this person doesn't really care that much about her. If, if he's willing to let her borrow money to pay for her side of the rent, when he can afford his side and more, I mean, what does he think that marriage really is about? Right? Like, Anyway, my advice is, um, you know, I think it's a very sort of antiquated idea that couples need to necessarily pull pool all their money and have the same bank account, right? Um, and and actually, my Ben and I went to a financial planner when we were younger, and um, we discovered that we actually have very different spending patterns. Um, he doesn't spend money, and I do, so you know, and <laughs> that's that's you know, and and so basically, we decided that. Um, that we wanted to sort of um, not share with each other everything that we're buying because it would just stress us out, right? Like, I don't think he wants to know how much money I spent on a dress and and I don't want to know, you know, like how much he spent on our new stereo system or whatever, right? Like, it just it was just stressful. But I think the financial planner still said that, um, you know, we should we should be thinking about a joint future. And that's what was important, right? And that we should be thinking about how we can be contributing to that together. And so what we do is we, we basically have joint goals and we, we work, we, 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 we pool our money there and we pool it, frankly, based on a, a percentage of how much we're earning, right? So if like he's earning um, more than I am, then we, we just break it down that way. And that's been working really well for us. Um, and so I don't know if that might work for this person, but I think underlying this question, it's a far more profound and painful issue, which is that this guy, her partner just doesn't seem to give a fuck about her and how she feels. Right. Yeah. And by the way, this, what you just said reminds me of the season three episode where Brett talks about her finances with her Ben and buying dresses specifically, um, which cracks me up. And, and we have the same, same relationship, Ben, uh, Brett. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I think, literally everything you just yeah, said, the, the, the spending habits, the every part. So of anyway, it. I, Are I, we just, I think actually we actually may be married to the same person. He's 30s. Well, yours makes money. He's, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're I mean, both 37 and called Ben. I mean, Brett, come on. There's that's all, so that's, weird. It's just one guy. That's just one guy. Um, all right. I, we, we have to move on to our next letter. And this is, I have to. No, I just want to say no, one thing, yeah. though. Like, I agree with everything Liz says, but also, this guy's a big bag of dicks. That's it. Go okay. on. Okay. That, 
I see. I love when you are so concise and you're just like, that's, you know? Yeah. Okay. Um, this is going to be a pandemic letter. Uh, so, you know, for those who are listening in five years when we're in our roaring 20s and wearing really funky hats and enjoying ourselves, you'll remember this time of, of what it brought to us. Um, hi, Meredith. I'm 26 and I met my boyfriend right before the pandemic. When lockdown hit, we stayed in touch virtually for two months, FaceTiming every weekend for hours and coming up with ways to get to know each other. Since meeting in person, we've spent every weekend for the last five months together. We've gone on many trips around the state to national parks. It's been a lot of fun and we've been through a lot together. It's my first relationship that has lasted this long, but he's and he's most of what I would want in a partner. He's incredibly caring, kind, invested, and perhaps most of all, really listens to me. The problem is that although I always want to see him and I care for him, I've never felt a strong enough connection that allows me to see a future. I have a very hard time seeing a future past the pandemic. I told him this, and he told me it was okay continuing to date if I needed more time, so we've kept going. He does see a future. I think the right thing would be to break up, but I don't want to throw away what we've built. It also feels wrong to break up with someone in an otherwise healthy relationship when the only thing that's missing is a passion that I somehow... can't quite feel. I know I love him, but I'm not in love with him. After six months, I don't know if that'll change. Should I invest more time in this? I also have to admit that I'm really scared to be alone right now. And this person signs it stuck. I mean, I had an answer, but I want to know what you guys think first. And by the way, for those watching, the sun is like, as the sun is going down in Boston, I feel like I'm fading into the night, but (laughs) on my camera. Um, What I would say is that we're in a really strange and painful time right now. And I think that you're, I I, I think that you might be putting a lot of pressure on yourself to try and figure all of this stuff out when all of us are in this strange time. Our relationships are not normal now, right? The way that we're interacting with people, it's not normal. And there are all of these existential issues that are sort of floating around in the ether that are making us think about relationships um, in a, different way. Maybe some of this is good. It's helping us really figure out like what really matters to us. And and it's forcing us to think about our mortality and things like that. But this is not a normal time. So I would say, you know, it sounds like it's a a good partnership and things are feeling good when they actually interact. So I would say, you know, kind of give yourself some breathing room, right? And and wait till, till things pass a little bit. I think that by next year when life begins to come back to normal, you'll get a clearer sense of of what's going on. I agree with Liz. One of the things that I love about this writer is that she says that she has been honest with him. And instead of like, you know, pussing out on it, she doesn't. She really, she's already told him how she feels. And I feel as long as like every couple of months or something or whatever, they do a check-in where she can say, you know, I don't know if I can see this for the long haul, but right now I'm enjoying my time with you. I mean, I know this sounds selfish, but I think she should hang in there because I, she doesn't sound like she wants to be alone or s- try to pursue somebody starting from scratch. I think that I think she should stick around. She doesn't seem sad about it, mm. just not crazy about the guy. It's right? inter- it's interesting because and, and I should mention, I don't know the gender of the letter writer, so could be could be anyone. But um, but uh, some of the ways I have fallen in love with people is when I see them with my friends and family, when I see them tip well at a restaurant for someone who's having a bad day, there are all these ways that we see how people behave in the world that can make us fall in ways that we're not getting. It could also be the deal breaker, right? When somebody is like rude to a person that they don't have to be rude to in the world, right? We're missing a lot of these social interactions. Like, I want to be with someone who 
likes my Aunt Nancy because everybody likes Aunt Nancy. I mean, she was on an episode of the podcast, FYI, right? Um, uh, and of course, to Brett, right? Someone who will like Brett and also not be scared of her. Um, that's a, that's a, uh, and we'll see all the wonderful things and not be a bag of dicks, as she might call them. So, you know, like, if you can't do that, if you can't contextualize the person you're dating in your world just yet, it might be worth waiting until you can, because what works in pandemic or doesn't feel like love in pandemic might feel different. That was sort of what I said, which sounds like we're all on the same page about that. Um, well, that was good. Thank you guys for answering letters. So um, we have to wrap up because uh, because we do. But I just wanted to thank everybody who's here right now because doing this podcast has kept me, I mean, it's been entertaining me for a few years now, and I feel incredibly privileged to hear hear people's stories, and particularly during these last seven, eight months, to be able to Zoom with people and hear them uh, meditate on their relationships about everything from a ball pit to Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Monica's um, military childhood, which was so incredibly opposite to the very... Um, always living in the same house childhood that I had. It is a, a look through so many different lenses and it's one I never take for granted. And I also never take the listeners for granted because um, you send really good emails and write your own really good letters and are just so thoughtful. So I just want to thank you. And I want to thank our two guests today, um, Brett, for for being the, the, the far more interesting Goldstein and sharing that with the world. Um, and Liz for writing a very well reported. I got to tell you that as a journalist reading this book, it's just a treat because um, there's just a lot of reporting in it. Um, and it's it's a lot of incredible uh, information just about how to be 20, how to be 25, how to be 28. And I just think that's so important. Um, I want to do I want those of us in our 40s, especially like me, who've done a lot of drugs. It's wonderful to be able to reflect on that time and what you've learned since then. The Mazel Tovla is wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. I want to do one last plug, and I know she may or may not be in here today, but uh, this year we hired a new illustrator for Love Letters, and if you were on the Love Letters Instagram, you've seen her beautiful illustrations. My favorite recent one is, um, it says, Winter is Coming, and she has these beautiful single and coupled people in quarantine in their homes, and um, uh, if you Google Cotton Candy Fro, and it is just so random that that is her brand name and my absolute love for Cotton Candy, she makes stickers and notebooks and all sorts of things, and it is what everybody is getting for Hanukkah and Christmas this year. So um, I just want to, I always want to shout out her work because she does such a beautiful job for us. Um, and uh, thank you all so much. Um, so uh, I'll see you in in 2021. Well, I'll see you more in 2020, but um, I just want to thank everybody for coming. And um, this was lovely. Technical end. Applause. Um, so, uh, so this was such a wonderful way to spend an afternoon. I know many of you have like children to take care of, um, take out to eat, TV to watch. We are going to run a movie now that is something curated by Liz, uh, because I asked her, since we are on cast and you can just watch stuff together, uh, I asked her to tell me, well, what's a 20-something movie that people should watch that will make them think about growth and development in their 20s? And, um, uh, yeah, thank you for that comment, uh, Soph B. Um, uh, and 
and those who are off to yoga now go enjoy. Um, so there is absolutely no pressure to stay, but the movie is Reality Bites, and I will be in the chat for as long as I can. Um, Liz, like, do you just want to say why you chose it? Do you want to introduce oh it before what we a, go? What a fantastic movie about the trials and tribulations and the relationships. Of, isn't that the relationship that Ethan Hawke and Winona Ryder have? have? Haven't we all had that relationship? The best friend gets tricky he leaves the next morning like we've all been there right and so it's it's i think it's the perfect um it's the perfect movie to take you back to all of the the wonderful crazy relationships of our 20s uh, the, what what i do think about this movie is well just how um you know, you talk about class and Ben Stiller's role in the movie and her choosing a partner or something to think about how much Jeanine Garofalo has some Brett-isms in this movie. And also um, the scene where she attempts to define irony. These are all oh, things that were... In the elevator! ...were, were formative um, in my writing youth. Um, so, and I believe the band is Who Stole My Bike or Dude... And, oh, my uh, Corona! <laughs> It's my shirt. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's a perfect so, yes. movie. Wait, Lisa just said, say bless you when someone sneezes. But I feel like that's singles. Now we're now that was singles. myself and say that was singles, right? Say that's singles, right? So, but like gr the grunge movies of, per of perfection. So, um, so we're going to turn off our, we're going to mute ourselves and turn off our cameras and the movie will roll again. Stay with us if you want. Leave if you want to. But thank you for coming today. It is not great to see you because I can't, but it's great to be with you. So, yes, thank you, everybody. Thank you. I'm proud of you, Meredith, as always. I love you. You're oh, wonderful. And Liz, proud of both of you. My soul sister, who yeah, you knew, I, and we're sharing a husband. Sister wife, apparently, too. Full on. Sister wife. <laughs> Full on. So, um, all right. Have a good afternoon, you guys. And thank you so much for being a part of our love, our Love Letters Live season four. On to season five eventually. <laughs> Love Letters is a production of the Boston Globe and PRX. Today's episode was produced by Scott Hellman. Ned Porter does our audio mixing, sound design, and mastering. Devin Smith and Jenna Serbo do our audience engagement. Love Letters illustrations by Ashanti Davis. Check them out on the Love Letters Instagram. Special thanks to Brian McGrory and Linda Henry. Our music is from APM. For our next season of Love Letters, we'll be featuring stories of new beginnings and fresh starts in love and relationships. Have a story you're willing to share? Email the team at loveletters@boston.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or online at loveletters.show. I'm Meredith Goldstein. Thanks for listening.